to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And in my speech and my message, they were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You may be seated as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this text this morning, I pray that you work in us an understanding of the faith that we have that rests not in man. And by reading here that it rests not in man, that means very applicably it does not rest in ourselves. But it rests in the power of God. Whatever it is that we are going through at the present, different persons that have gathered here this morning with, from different walks of life with different trials and troubles and things that they have been going through outside these walls. Whatever it is that's been going on for us in the week that we've just lived through and in the week that we are looking toward, I pray that we put those things aside, that nothing distracts us from hearing from your word this morning. And that our faith may once again be grounded in something that is beyond ourselves. It is not dependent upon our circumstances, but it is dependent upon Christ who saves. I pray, Lord, that you be with me this morning as I preach from your word, and that what shines forth in this message is not me, but Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Some of you may be aware of the different tricks and tactics that are being used by the world to try to draw people into their respective churches. Some of you may have left a church of that kind exhausted with the uh, extrasensory overload that may be going on in that particular kind of service to try to attract people with different lights and sound and all different kinds of things. It, it just bombards the senses. And you couldn't stand it any longer, and so looking for somebody that actually loves the word and preaches the word, perhaps that's how you found your way to this particular church. Our church in East Texas, First Baptist Church of Lindale, is growing by more than 50 members a year. And some of the persons that end up coming into our congregation have come from churches just like that, what we might call a seeker-sensitive church, or or has been influenced by the seeker-sensitive movement. And there was one man that I talked to after service, had just met him before service and managed to connect with him when the service was over. And I said, so how did you enjoy the service today? And he said, I'm not leaving here today with a pounding headache. <laughs> but all of the, the, the loudness of the church that he came from, he couldn't handle it anymore and decided to find a place where Christ is put on display rather than the band or uh, the, the high budget that had been put into that particular kind of production. Just this summer, in fact, there have been many churches, larger churches, particularly mega churches, that have been involved in a series called At the Movies. And they have been taking films, popular movies, not just that are present in the culture, though uh, two of the biggest films over the summer have been Oppenheimer and Barbie. Those two have been uh, displayed prominently in these church services, believe it or not. But they've even been gleaning from older films Uh, Saddleback Church, which is the church that has been founded by Rick Warren, used Toy Story as a theme for one of their series that they did. And the two pastors, the two senior pastors of that church happened to be a man and wife, which has problems in itself. But they came out on stage dressed as Woody and Bo Peep. And this was the way that they conducted the church over several weeks in the series that they did entitled at the movies. One church Uh, uh, advertised its series online on social media in this way. In the Bible, Jesus used contextual and relatable stories called parables to share meaningful messages. And we're bringing that same approach to at the movies. Join us tomorrow as we engage with the timeless message of God in a whole new way. Premiere cinemas at 10 a.m. My friends, if a church is advertising itself as presenting the message of God in a whole new way, you can be assured 
you can be assured that they are using old, old heresies packaged in a new way. That's all it is that they are doing. It reminded me of the quote from Archibald Brown, who uh, was a student of Charles Spurgeon. This quote is often attributed to Spurgeon, but it was actually Brown who said it. A time will come when instead of having shepherds feeding the sheep, we will have clowns feeding the goats. And we see that in many ways happening in the church landscape in America. And not just in this pragmatic sort of a way of using these, uh, these different gimmicks to try to draw people in and enticing people in that way, but also through various different ideologies. You are surely familiar with the woke movement and this idea that a church must have a certain diversification to it or even be uh, adhered to a particular political strategy. There are not just those churches on the left that may think that way, but even those on the right, those that would incorporate ideas of Christian nationalism. And I'm only going to attend a church that really cares about the same political issues that I care about and is being militant in the culture to try to march against these things that we see going leftward in our nation. These things in itself can also be enticing methods to draw people in. And then what is on display is the ideology and not Christ himself. But yet, what do we see in this particular passage, what Paul is addressing to the Corinthians with regards to how he brought the message to them? He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if the church is not about proclaiming Christ and his gospel, then it looks no different than anything else in the world. As we come to this text today, we can see that this text divides rightly into two parts. First of all, we have the message that converts, which Paul emphasizes in verses 1 and 2. And then the second part of this passage in verses 3 through 5, the manner that commends. So once again, verses 1 and 2, the message that converts. And then verses 3 through 5, the manner that commends. And those are my two parts for this sermon this morning. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, we have a problem already because we're good Baptists and this guest Baptist preacher that has come in doesn't have a three-part sermon. <laughs> and to that, I would say, uh, talk to Chris afterward because he assigned me this text, so it's his fault. <laughs> but to add two more points to this so I can be an overachiever. We're going to spend a little bit of time here at the beginning putting this in context so we see how this passage sits with the rest of the letter to the Corinthians. So that's how I'm going to, uh, to enter into this text at first. And then toward the end, we want to save a little bit of time to do some application, though we will be doing some application on the way. So kind of an introduction and a, and a conclusion, and in the middle we have these two points, the message that converts, the manner that commends, so that we will see... Verse 5, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So let's consider, first of all, this letter that Paul has written to the Corinthians. If you could summarize this letter that Paul has written to this church, I think you could summarize it in these two words. Grow up. <laughs> this was a church that was incredibly immature, and though Paul had been with them for a year and a half, consider some of the things that were dividing this particular body. Some of them were arguing over teachers. I like this teacher. Well, I like that teacher. And then others were trying to trump, uh, trump the rest of them by going, well, well, I like Christ. And you see that verse in, or you see that right there in verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Right here in chapter 1, in verse 13, Paul says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Addressing some of the divisions that exist in this body. And why are those divisions there? Because this church is still thinking in fleshly ways instead of in spiritual ways. And as the letter will go on, Paul will continue to confront some of the other problems that exist in this body. 
In chapter 5, we read about sexual immorality that's in this particular body, and it's even said exactly what that sexual immorality is, a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. Paul says in 5.1, for a man has his father's wife, a man who was sleeping with his stepmother, and he called the rest of the church arrogant because they wouldn't deal with this problem. In chapter 6, Paul confronts the fact that there's lawsuits that are going on between believers, One brother in the Lord is taking another brother to court and over trivial things. And he says, is there not anyone among you who is wise enough to handle these disputes between brothers? Emphasizing once again their immaturity. In chapter 7, Paul responds to questions that had come to him from this church regarding how to handle uh, uh, different uh, dynamics in marriage. He says to each one to live as they are called. In chapters 8 through 10, he talks about food offered to idols and rebukes this church because they're not being considerate of one another, each one trying to exercise his own Christian liberty instead of thinking about the things that you might be at liberty to do could cause your brother to stumble. In chapter 11, we read about uh, the proper practice of worship in two ways, one addressing head coverings and another addressing the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's table was even misused in such a way that Paul says some of you are getting sick and dying because you come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Chapters 12 through 14 address the proper practice of spiritual gifts, which the church was not doing properly. For Paul says over and over, especially in chapters 12 and 14, that the gifts are given to you for the benefit of building up the church. But how was it that the Corinthians were using these gifts? To build themselves up or to highlight themselves or look how great I am. Look look at this knowledge that I have or this ability that I have been given. And sitting right in the middle of those two chapters is chapter 13, which we often refer to as the love chapter. We know that famous verse, love is patient and kind. You've probably heard that chapter read at many weddings. But Paul was not being romantic when he said these things to the Corinthians. He was rebuking them. And everything you hear him say about love in that chapter, you can be assured the Corinthians were doing the opposite. In chapter 15, we even read about this beautiful apologetic doctrine regarding the resurrection of Christ. But Paul lays out this doctrine, the resurrection of the dead, Christ's resurrection, and even the promise of our own. He lays out this apologetic because there are some among them that don't believe it. In chapter 15, verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Can you imagine a church where there are members there that are not even sure if Christ or us would come back from the dead? What good is the gospel if we don't believe that there is a resurrection of the dead. It's in that particular chapter in chapter 15 where Paul says to them, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And Paul calls that of first importance. And so we come back, let me come back to chapter 1 here once again, where we see some of the things that Paul says in confronting the divisions among them and the fact that this church was so fleshly in their thinking that they had even forgotten some of the basics of the gospel. Now, there's a couple of ways that this ministers to me, to to hear that about the Apostle Paul in this particular church. Two ways as a pastor this ministers to me deeply. Number one, I don't know how many of you have ever encountered this before or been tempted to say, that church down the road is not a church. Look at the way they act. Look at the way they behave. There's sexual immorality among them. Some of them have lawsuits against one. There's even basic Christian doctrines that there's people there that don't believe it. How can we even call that a church? Shut their doors, lock it, board up the place, take the sign off the door. They should not even be calling themselves a church of Jesus Christ anymore. Have you ever been tempted to say such a thing? And yet I read about this church, and Paul doesn't say that about the church in Corinth. 
And remember, this is a church that Paul planted and spent a year and a half there. And he doesn't write to them and say that you guys, you're not even worthy of being called. I don't even think there's believers among you anymore. He doesn't say that. But rather, he lovingly calls this church to repentance. As Jesus says, to a wayward church in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And though Paul has to take a harsh tone with them here, this is love, my friends. And this is so unlike the pragmatism that you will encounter in much of the church today trying to win people through flashy flair and other things. This is... They won't confront you about anything because that would be too offensive and we don't want to drive people away. But here Paul does not fear being confrontational with this church because he knows that those who are genuine will be revealed. Something that he says later on in the letter, in fact. And so he takes a very rebuking tone, but because he loves this church. So that's one way that this ministers to me. To not so quickly write off those that will transgress or fall into sin or go wayward, but but with long-suffering and patience appeal to them to repent and come back to the way of righteousness. That's one way this ministers to me. Second way this ministers to me, something I've already mentioned. This is Paul's church. The Apostle Paul. He was a pastor of this church. Look at how messed up it is. And so when I look at mine, I'm going, I'm not doing so bad. If this could be the Apostle Paul's church, then, then I feel pretty good about mine. But really, that's a conviction because if Paul was willing to be long-suffering with this church, then I need to be willing to be long-suffering with mine. So two ways that, the, that this letter uh, ministers to me in that way and understanding my own responsibility as a shepherd of the flock, an under-shepherd to the chief shepherd who is Christ. Consider some of these things that Paul says to this wandering church in 1 Corinthians 1.18 for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Now let me stop there for a moment. How many in that church might have been thinking to themselves oh this stuff about the cross is kind of lame anyway. Now why, why can't we latch on to these finer points of Christianity and chase those things to, to greater glory and, uh, uh, and esteem among our peers, among our, among our fellow Greeks. Some of the Corinthian Christians most likely felt that way. Because as we read about the Greeks in Acts chapter 17, they loved to hear new things. They wanted nothing but new knowledge. And some of these Corinthians were probably in this church because they were just curious about this new kid on the block. This Jesus Christ, this new Messiah, well, this is, this is kind of fascinating. If I chase after this new teaching, well, then I'll have something that the rest of the Greeks don't have. And so Paul really challenges them with this statement to say that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Well, that might convict some of those that were sitting right there hearing this letter read aloud. Thinking, I do think of the cross as foolishness. Does that mean that I'm perishing? But Paul says, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Christianity was a mockery of the pagan world in the first couple of centuries as the church and the gospel were spreading in the Roman Empire. These people who worship multiple gods and they're looking at this faith called Christianity that worshiped one god. And this one god that they worshiped was a carpenter? And he was crucified on a thief's cross? How absurd. Some of you may have seen this particular etching or drawing, but there was even, it's considered to be like the oldest comic in the history of the world. But it's a picture of a man on a cross with a horse's head, and then another man that's right there standing at the cross, and the caption underneath it says, Behold, he worships his God. This was a comic that was done by Romans to mock Christians for who they worshipped. Your God was crucified on a cross. And yet, what do you see among 
the ancient architecture, the way that they crafted these marble gods, oh, they're all ripped and tall and huge in stature, look like the model man and woman when you see these gods and goddesses that the Greeks and Romans worshipped. And yet the Christians are worshipping a crucified Savior, a risen Savior, most definitely. But Paul doesn't get to the resurrection aspects of our faith until chapter 15. He starts in chapter 1 saying, you have got to reason yourself with this first, that the message of the cross is what we believe. It is the cross that saves us. It is our Savior who humbled himself and died in our place. That is our salvation. And if you can't reason yourself with that, then what good is the resurrection to you? If the God you worship did not, in his incarnation, take on flesh and dwell among us and even give himself over to death, then there's no power in the resurrection either. And so Paul comes to this with this, comes to them with this statement and says in verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Important, because that comes back up in chapter 2. Paul says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I'm going to read to the rest, to the end of the chapter here, beginning in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Listen to this, because this is about you. Verse 30. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It is because of him that you are in Christ. Now, for those of you, just going to add this in here for... Uh, fun little bit of trivia, but for those of you who love organized letters, sermons, you want everything neatly outlined, 1 Corinthians is for you. Because this statement that Paul just made in verse 30 is an outline to the rest of the letter. He became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Wisdom is then what Paul will go on to talk about in chapters 2 through 4. The righteousness of God in chapters 5 and 6 sanctification in 7 through 14, and redemption is chapter 15, and then conclusion in 16. That's Paul's outline. He gave it right there in chapter 1. So if you love an organized, neatly outlined letter, go read 1 Corinthians, and you will enjoy the way that that letter is broken down. So we go from that. We go from that statement. Now in, in chapter 1, verse 30, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, and we come now into chapter 2. So there's the background into this particular letter, setting chapter 2 in its context so that we read here in verses 1 and 2. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the, the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. Didn't we just hear that in chapter 1? For I decided to know nothing among you except... Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this was not about Paul making something flashy of himself. Look at how brilliant an orator I am. That was not Paul. In fact, when you read in the next letter, in 2 Corinthians 10.10, it says that Paul really was not of that great a speech. He, he spoke with 
with kind of trembling words. He was a brilliant man. Paul was incredibly smart. Top of his class, a Pharisee among Pharisees as he lays out his resume in Philippians 3, but then says, I consider all of that rubbish or dung for the surpassing greatness of Christ. So all the things that he accomplished and the great brilliance that he had didn't matter. It was to make Christ great. So he was a very intelligent man, but he may not have been the best orator in the world. In fact, the Corinthians seemed to fancy Apollos more than they desired to hear from Paul. Apollo seemed to be that brilliant public speaker and had an incredible speaking voice, at least the way that we hear Apollos talked about in the scriptures, and Paul not so much. He was was more mild-mannered. He was more of a meek man. He did not have as much of an imposing presence when he spoke in the public. But nonetheless, as smart as this guy was and as great a debater as he was, as Acts tells us about him, he says here in verse 2 that I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And so once again, summarizing 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2 in this way, that we see highlighted here the message that converts. Paul didn't come proclaiming a testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. His foremost desire was to preach the gospel to the Corinthians and not to make much of himself but to make much of Christ. Steve Lawson has said, the best sermons that a a pastor will preach should not be those that after the end of the sermon, people come up to the pastor and say, oh, pastor, you did so great today, and I love the way that you outlined everything, and your emphasis was terrific. You told such funny stories. You even made me cry at one point. Oh, it was just wonderful. The best sermons that a pastor should preach are the ones in which people are walking out saying, pastor, thank you for making Christ big to me today. Those are the best sermons when Christ is made big for us. 1 Corinthians is a very special place for me, not only because I've, I've taught through it several times. This is one of the books that I've taught through more than any other between my podcast, between two churches that I've pastored, and, uh, and it, was, it was quite uh, providential, no pun intended, for me that Chris would say to me that, hey, we want you to preach from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I'm like, I'm on it. I'm ready to preach this. So this, this letter has, has meant a great deal to me in the, in the amount of time that I've spent in it and taught from it. The first time that I preached through 1 Corinthians, there was a young man in my church. His name was Stephen. And Stephen was seeing some of the debates that were going on in our church at that particular time. There was a group of men who were made up of mostly officers from on post, uh, the military base that was right next to us, where my church was in Junction City. Fort Riley is right next door. In fact, they're so close to one another, it's practically one town. But there were some men that had a, a fundamentalist Baptist background, and they were very staunchly Arminian. And when they would hear me preach, I was not a, an outspoken Calvinist in any sort of a way, but But the way that I would preach certain verses would make them go, well, this guy sounds like a Calvinist. We have to do something about this. So they were trying to rally people together and saying that these doctrines are false. These are the doctrines that you should be following. And this young man, Stephen, was kind of torn because he was was feeling convicted over the things that I was preaching from the word. But himself, being a soldier, had great respect for some of these officers that were trying to disrupt the proclamation of the sovereignty of God. And so he got a hold of me one time and he said, I I would like to go out to lunch with you and I just want to pick your brain about some of these things. I've written some of this stuff down and and I've kind of tried to listen to the arguments from both sides. And so can I just have an audience with you? Can we just get some lunch and we'll talk about these things? And I said, sure, let's do it. So on a Wednesday at Qdoba, because that was my jam at the time, I loved Qdoba burritos. So any excuse to go get a burrito and talk theology, let's do it. So on a Wednesday afternoon, we sat down and we got our burritos and we're sitting at a table outside the restaurant. And he had brought a notebook with him and he opened up that notebook and I said, okay, well, share with me some of your concerns. What are some of your questions? And for 20 minutes, he just tore into Calvinism and he went down each one of the five points, total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, on and on. He just, he went through all five points and just expressed his disagreement with every one of them. 
And I let him talk. I let him do his spiel for 20 minutes. And we got to the end of that, uh, of, of his side of the conversation. And I said to him, well, Stephen, I'm not going to sit here and give you a defense for each one of those points. Let me, let me do this instead. Can we just open up the Bible and read some passages together? And he said, okay, fine. And, and he's all worked up because he's gone through this for 20 minutes. And, you know, I don't think he's even eaten his burrito, and I've probably finished mine by this point. So, so I said, let's just open the word. Open up to 1 Corinthians. Let's start there. And so we open up to 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. And I said, why don't you start reading? And he goes, Paul called by the will of God. And then he went, well, that's it. And I went, what, 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 what's it? What are you talking about? And he goes, well, Paul was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ. I can't compete with that. That's, it's all God. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, this can't be that easy. (laughs) But I said, okay, I'm glad you're convinced, but let's keep reading. Let's keep going. And we went through probably the first three or four chapters of 1 Corinthians together, looking at the power of God and the power of faith that rests not in man but in God. And by the end of that conversation, he was fully convinced of the doctrine of God's sovereign election. And it was not by any mechanism of mine that convinced him. I didn't even say a word yet. He opened the Bible and read, Paul called by the will of God. And he was convinced that his faith had nothing to do with him or any convincing argument that man can come up with. But it was only in the power of God. And so Paul says, I came to you, brothers, not proclaiming uh, with, with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that is the message that we all need. And when I say we all need, I mean you have needed it to come to your faith and you still need it now. As I've heard John Piper say, you never, 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 never graduate from the gospel. Give or take or never, however many he threw in there. We need the gospel to come to faith in Christ, and we continually need the gospel. And even here, recognize, Paul is talking to a church that's gone wayward. They, They are operating and acting out of their flesh and not in a faith that is grounded in Christ. And so, as he says in chapter 3, verse 1, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And yet, even though this people has kind of gone away from the gospel, they need to be brought back to it again, Paul is not adding in all these pragmatic strategies to convince them of the truth that was first proclaimed to them. He's just proclaiming the truth to them again. And he will lead them through the practical outworkings of that. Like now that we believe in the gospel, what what should that look like in our lives? We have that in 1 Corinthians. But it begins with the gospel. It begins with that proclamation that Christ died for our sins and rose again from the dead. And it is only through Christ that we are brought from death to life. It's only through Christ that we are brought from an unbeliever to a believer. And so Paul says, this is not by my will that you've been brought to this. And I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In John 1.13, where it is said to us that we are born not of the will of man. We are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. For all those who believe in his name, that is how we are born again, by the work of God, not by the convincing arguments of man. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, not by the most convincing mechanisms of man, but by the simple proclamation of the gospel.
And oh, what a blessing and grace of God that he's chosen these simple means to bring us to faith. You can't afford to pack up a laser light show and take it to the poorest of people in, uh, even in the United States of America to proclaim to them the gospel with this fantastic presentation. But you can go into the most destitute places of the world and simply say, you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and I'm here to tell you that Savior is Christ. And the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich need and can understand that message by the power of God. When it comes to proclaiming the gospel, I want there to be less of me in the way so that more of Christ can be proclaimed. But praise God that he uses people to proclaim his gospel. We are all different people of different personalities and different backgrounds, and yet God will use you in the places where you are, in the relationships that you have to share the gospel with somebody who needs to hear it. Just as we see these different personalities in the Bible and God working through them to write 66 books with 40 different personalities behind them. But God nonetheless used these people to proclaim his word that we might know the relationship that we can have with God through Christ our Savior, proclaiming Christ and him crucified. So we hear about in verses 1 and 2 the message that converts And then secondly, in verses 3 through 5, we consider the manner that commends. So the message that converts, and then Paul says something about his own manner, that he might commend this people to God. Verses 3 through 5, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now that is not what a Greek would expect from their chief orators. They're not expecting a man who is weak and in fear and in much trembling. They want the guy that stands up there boldly and proudly. And he's even decked out in his finest garb showing, see how successful I've been with this message that I've proclaimed. And so he stands up there in, his, in the public square and he proclaims his philosophy, maybe this new philosophy even that he's introducing, and it attracts a crowd. This is what the Greeks loved, new knowledge, great orators to deliver it. And so the crowd comes and listens to him, him speak and he does this for you know, maybe several days and then what he says to this crowd that is gathered, now I'm starting a school. And my school is over here, and if you guys pay me this much money, you can come and be part of my school. This is the way that orators, the new philosophers, would come into various townships and try to, uh, to make themselves or, or get rich off of the people by proclaiming these new philosophies. And that's not what Paul did. He doesn't even come and stand in such a place that he can show his flash or his ability to deliver a terrific sermon. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Not because he was, a, he was a, a, an agoraphobe, somebody who's afraid of public places and, and speaking in front of large crowds. That wasn't why Paul trembled. It was because he was under authority, the under the authority of God. He did not care what the people thought of him, but he cared about being faithful to the Lord. And when I hear Paul say this, when I was with you in, I, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, it reminds me of a statement from the great reformer John Knox who says, I have never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter into the pulpit. And that was the apostle Paul proclaiming the goodness of the gospel to the Corinthians, with humility and meekness, in the fear of God, not in the fear of man. And my friends, things are not so different today. As you can turn on any of the TV networks and see those televangelists with their flashy smiles and the great gold globe behind them, Proclaiming, look and see how much wealth that we have and how successful this church has been. And they buy out arenas and they have literally tens of thousands of people that are attending their churches. But you will not hear the gospel preached. You hear ears tickled. Where Paul had talked about with Timothy, a time is coming and is now here when people will not 
desire to listen to sound teaching, but desiring to have their itchy ears scratched, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And such teachers are given as a judgment upon those who don't want to hear the gospel, but rather want to have their flesh appealed to. Entertaining the goats, just as what was said earlier by Archibald Brown. So Paul goes on to say in verse 4, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. It was not about me, it was about Christ. My speech and my message, not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now let me give a little bit of application. We're going to do a little bit more at the end here, but let me do some here. Why is this so important? Why is it so important to recognize that our faith comes not by somebody was convincing to us or because... You know, I, I attended a, a great concert that gave me goosebumps, and then the guy said at the end, now if you want to accept Jesus, come down front, sign the card, and uh, you, now you have your get-out-of-hell-free card. Why is our, our faith dependent upon the word that is spoken and our faith in the proclamation of Christ and not in these other things? Because if it was about all of these other things, you could never be sure that you were actually saved. You would always be asking yourself, did I do it right? Was the method done in the right way? Did I pray the right words in my prayer? Did I check the right box in the card? Or was it like the multiple choice at school where I have to fill in the box entirely instead of putting the check mark? There's always going to be something that will cause you to doubt whether this was done in the right way. That's number one. Number two is that for those who are given the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel and drawing others to Christ through the declaration of the gospel, they can never be sure that they've even seen anybody become saved. Because it took fleshly things to draw a person into hearing the gospel. It's going to take fleshly things in order to keep them there. And these churches that do those pragmatic things to try to draw people in, the entertainment that they've had to provide to entice people to come in the door, or maybe the promise of giveaways, or maybe it's a prosperity gospel, come and pay this money, and then God will pour out to you so much more money. All of those declarations, they have to keep doing in order to keep people coming in the door, because that's why they came in in the first place. There was once upon a time... Decades ago, when churches that started to come into this kind of pragmatism, they began doing it because they had this strategy of this bait and switch. We're going to do all of this stuff. We're going to promise people things. They're going to come, and then we're going to lay the gospel on them. Ah, you, you thought you came to be entertained. No, you came for this stuff, but we're actually here to proclaim the gospel. That's the way it used to be, and that's why that strategy developed and, and, and how it steamrolled into what it is but now it's become this thing where they've recognized the strategy in order to work we have to continue to entertain them in order to keep them here so now they're not even preaching the gospel anymore because that was the thing that was turning people away if we want to keep people here then we have to do all of the stuff that drew them here in the first place and is anybody in that environment actually saved when the gospel is not proclaimed and so Paul says that my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. There is a, uh, hang on just a second, sorry. There was a uh, pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse. And he was a great preacher, a Presbyterian preacher, we'll forgive him for that. But he was, he preached in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He had a radio show that broadcast all over the country. And in one of his radio programs, Barnhouse said, what would Satan's America look like? And he said, Satan's America might look something like this. You would have happy families, husbands faithful to their wives, Husbands loving their kids. They would be successful at their jobs. 
You would have perfect little ideal houses and neighborhoods where maybe there's even no crime and wonderful, beautiful white picket fences. And each one of these families goes to church every Sunday in Satan's America where Christ is not preached. So it's not even enough for us to say that we've got the ideal American life or we attend church every single Sunday. The only thing that converts and brings us to God is the message of Jesus Christ. And Paul lays out here in verse 5 the reason for this, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man but in the power of God. That's an interesting word in the English Standard Version. It's the word rest. Your faith might not rest, but in, uh, in the Greek, which Paul was originally writing in the Greek language, we might understand that word to be established or founded upon, rest, built on this. Your, fi- your faith might not be established in the wisdom of man. That's not a good faith anyway. That's a sandy foundation. As Jesus gave that parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the wise man builds his house on the rock. The foolish man builds his house on the sand. And those who rest in the wisdom of men have a foundation that is constantly shifting. And my friends, you you see that in the world. You go out and look around in the world and you see an opinion that is passing today as the establishment for the way that things should be, and that opinion is going to be different tomorrow. You're going to have a definition of love that the world is going to give you today, and they're going to change their minds and decide that love has a different different definition tomorrow. This is the shifting sandy foundation of man's wisdom. But praise God. That the Jesus we worship is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this word that we're reading here is the same word that has been given to the church for 2,000 years. And it being the foundation of our faith, we recognize that we have come to faith in Christ not by any mechanism of man, but by the power of God. And what assurance is that for us in our lives? To know that we've been saved not because of ourselves, not because of any man, but by God. And so let's find some practical applications for this as we close, as we bring this to a conclusion and then we partake in the Lord's Supper together. So surely our faith in Christ, our name as Christians, must be on Christ and not upon man. And so as far as our theology goes, that makes a lot of sense. And there we've established it as as our faith and our belief. But now, now as I go out from this place and I live, how is that practically going to work out in our lives? Well, you come to recognize that everything that we are to do as Christians is done not by the mechanism of man, but by the power of God. It is not going to be in man's ability to come up with a new way or a new technique or a new philosophy or a a, a new five-step plan to a better life. Those things don't make you better. It is the powerful working of the Holy Spirit of God in your hearts that transforms the life and brings us into sanctification that makes us more and more holy before God. And now that that filters into every aspect of your life. That changes the way you go to work. For as Paul will even talk about with the Colossians, how the the outworking of your faith will look in the job place. In Colossians chapter 3, remember that you work not for man, but for God. It changes the way you love your spouse. For it's not dependent upon this marriage help book to help me be a better husband or a better wife, but you simply go to the scriptures and you read in in imaging Christ that I am to be a husband who loves his wife as Christ loves the church and lays my life down for her. And my wife, is is in the way that the church submits to Christ, is to submit to her husband. When it comes to loving my kids, I love my kids the same way that God loves me. 
and disciplines me and grows me in the knowledge of his word. That I might also find application in a passage like Ephesians 6, 4 to discipline your children in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And fathers, do not be harsh with them. For my God has not been harsh with me, but has loved me and by his grace has brought me to him by a power that exists not upon men, but upon God. And there are many other ways that we can probably go from this and find practical application in our lives. But you see how faith that we have is more than just this pocket of religion that we put over here. And we have our little, our, our little room or our closet of religion as long as it doesn't filter into the rest of our lives. This is supposed to govern every single thing that we do. To do that, you need to be oh, I, do, I need to be online to do that. <laughs> So we see once again in verse 5, sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass anybody. (laughs) So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Once again, seeing that it is all of Christ. That we we would not be dependent upon finding the next big thing to get my life in order or even to make me right with God. But we remember simply and once again, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Matthew Henry about this particular passage says this, Christ in his person and offices and sufferings is the sum and substance of the gospel and ought to be the great subject of a gospel minister's preaching, but not so as to leave out other parts of God's revealed truth and will. Paul preached the whole counsel of God, Few know the fear and trembling of faithful ministers from a deep sense of their own weakness. They know how insufficient they are and how fearful for themselves. When nothing but Christ is crucified, when nothing but Christ crucified is plainly preached, the success must be entirely from divine power accompanying the word, and thus men are brought to believe to the salvation of their souls. And so that we come to know once again Christ and him crucified. And that our faith does not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If you are here today and you don't know what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you don't know what it means to be saved and to have the promise of eternal life in his eternal kingdom. Then I hope that you would stay and you would talk to myself, to Chris to Alan, one of these pastors, that we might show you what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and know confidently that by faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven. And though this life will continue to be hard and we will continue to struggle, a friend of mine made the comment online the other day, oh, suddenly I just realized sanctification is hard. (laughs) It is a difficult process, but you can know with confidence that no matter how hard this life will get from now to the end, Your eternity is secure with Christ forever in glory by all who have faith, for all who have faith in him. Let us finish with prayer.